Good day, good afternoon, and good night, I guess, maybe. Welcome to QBT. Um, an Uber driver told me last night that I needed to try Taco Bell fries. How do you feel uh, about that? Oh, like the nacho fries? I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I, I truly don't I, know. <laughs> I have two thoughts. One, why is your Uber driver telling you about Taco Bell nacho fries? And then okay. second, they're really <laughs> delicious, actually. Okay, I believe you. <laughs> our, our friend Nojin was in the front seat, and we were just kind of making, like, you know, 2 a.m. coming home conversation of, like, mm. what's your favorite fast food fry? Because we were on our way to P. Terry's, which is a stand in Austin anyway. And uh, we were talking about it, and as he didn't say anything the whole ride, as we're getting out, and he was like, you should maybe try the Taco Bell fries. And we were like, thanks, bro. Um, anyway, I'm uh, Maddie Germs. <laughs> and I'm Shawnee, and a lover of Taco Bell. Okay, I love, honestly, it's like the most vegetarian-friendly fast food place. Um, and we are two queer babes talking about mental health, pop culture, and whatever the hell else we want. We're back with a new series for you. Let's get into it. You ready? Let's do it. Ah, it's another another week, another wow. episode, but so a new topic. I love it. I'm excited. We're doing something new. We're gonna we're switching it up. We we closed out our last topic on new beginnings. Yes. Um, so we're gonna talk about something that is not a new beginning for us. I don't think. No. And to introduce it, here's my sub slut question for you. Okay. Maybe you can guess what the topic is based on based off of this question. Okay. When did you realize? your racial identity. In other words, when did you realize you were white? An easy start to this Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I'm not going to like uh, make it dramatic that I think it's like a hard question. I think the reality is, and the embarrassing reality is, is that I don't have a good answer because I think that I realized my racial identity lots of times over time. I think when I like started like sort of quote, identifying as white and knowing like my whiteness and, and sort of, um, I don't know, trying to navigate that, I guess that was probably 17, 18 in terms of like a more conscious ownership of that. Um, I would say maybe one of those earlier times are just like when you have to fill in a bubble on like a test for the first time, it's like, what are you? And you're like, I guess I'm white or like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, because Caucasian, right. I mean, I grew up in that very, like, we don't see color kind of thing. And then we just like are racist at home, that kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? Oh Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, But I'm sure you have a very different answer and better answer than mine, I guess. Oh my God. Absolutely. But my follow up before I give you my answer is also, when did you first experience white guilt? Oh, uh, I mean, honestly, probably in school when they were talking about like slavery, it's like, Mm. you're like, uh, I don't know. Not in the maybe healthiest way in the because our American education system is fucking shit. But I do think that there is that like moment of like, oh shit. You know, I think if you are not um, as detached and you are kind of like seeing yourself as directly connected to those folks, I think there is a little bit of like, oh my God, this was like not that long ago. Um, yeah. So maybe then, um, I don't know. Interesting. I don't think I've, I've never asked you that. So I decided to do it now. I mean, I have to you like know, battle it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's well, like I, in my adulthood so. a little more, but <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, I realized I was black when I came out of my mother's womb. No, um, <laughs> I mean it took some time because what I was a baby and like 
probably was only around other black people in yeah. my family for a very long time. Yeah. It was truly, um, it was actually, it was kindergarten. Um, I remember I went to a, it wasn't a private school. It was like a teaching elementary school. So it was across the street from a college campus and like teachers that were going to be, I guess, real teachers. It, yeah. The school had a lot of student teachers and then like people that were like teachers, teachers. Um, <laughs> anyways. There was like this really long wait list for it. My mom was always like, I'm putting you on this wait list. Like, I don't care if you have to wait an extra year to go to school. Like, this is like mm. the best school that we can like get you for free. Cool. And I like, of course, I was in the kindergarten. Like, all right, cool, whatever. I can just mm. stay at home longer. Anyways, I got to that classroom and was the only like person of color, but mm. also the only black, black kid person. like in the classroom. And I lied to you not, Maddie. I was one of only two black people in that entire school. Um, and the other one, the other black kid was my cousin, which was wild, who was in like third or fourth grade at the time. Did you mostly go to school with white people growing up? I did. Uh, this actually came up. So funny. We're going to, I'll intro Dr. Veronica Johnson later, but this came up when we were in school together one time. Mm. Um, yeah, I spent the majority of my life um, at PWIs. Uh, mm -hmm. just, you know, from elementary all the way up through high school. Uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I was, like, completely surrounded by Black people again, going to Morehouse, and then left that and went right back to, like, a PWI. So, I don't know. I've always felt very... I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but, like, being around white people has not, like, phased me because that's what the majority of my upbringing was. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it doesn't like it didn't like annoy me or that I didn't yeah. feel othered most of the time. But yeah, I think that like kindergarten is when it happened for me. And I don't know, it's just interesting like hearing people talk a little bit about when they realize that they first when they first realize that they like have a race yeah. and like what happened, what contributed to that. Like, you know, for some people it's a slur or like a like a, a sort of a negative event happens. And sometimes it's just like a consciousness. It's just like, oh, there's nobody here that looks like me. Right. Right. Or the opposite, like everybody here looks like me, mm. <laughs> like nobody looks different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think schooling in the States especially is when that kind of comes up for some of that first time because it's like you're faced with it, right? You're like, look, yeah. and, and there's a curiosity with kids too of just like, you know, touching and looking of like, what is going on that's, you know, different. But I think um, it exists in this world of difference and not necessarily in these sort of like, connection at least for white people i think connection to this larger like we don't have a race everyone else has a race right like that's like the fucked up learning that we inhabit a lot of times and so i think that mm. th it's not so much that i didn't notice that i was white or didn't notice that other people weren't white or you know that i wasn't other things it was just that like i didn't mentally place it in a category of a racial identity until much later in my life you know yeah, yeah, yeah. That Which is, sense. you know, it's fucked up, but it's there. I know. Well, that was a great little intro to our topic of the week, which is Christmas. We're talking about <laughs> Christmas this week. Uh, nothing to do with race at all. No, I'm joking. Um, Jesus was yeah, black. A, Jesus was, hey, <laughs> he was, okay? And I'll fight anybody that says anything otherwise. Um, 
So yeah, we're exploring race, race and racism. Um, I know that we touched on this in season one, um, especially when we were starting out, because um, you know there was a lot going on in America specifically um, related to George Floyd and countless other Black folks that have been murdered senselessly by the police um, and other people as well. But as I said back then, and as I'll continue to say, like that wasn't just like a a moment. Like this is this is. It wasn't like a one-off moment that happened then, and then we all look past it. America's healed. There's no such thing as racism anymore. Right. Um, race and racism continue to exist. I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon, um, and especially not until more people become comfortable talking about those things. I feel like a lot of times there's this discomfort with talking about race because you're afraid of rubbing somebody the wrong way or saying the wrong thing, or maybe you do hold on to a belief um, related to like discrimination. But... You know, we're never going to get better if we don't have those conversations. So yeah. we're going to have those conversations on this podcast. Yeah. And to your point, I think something that we have had conversations on, I almost said on camera, but that's just because I'm <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of myself right now. But um, on the podcast and off the podcast is that like um, looking at the intersections of race is sort of integral to how we approach this work. So it's not there. I think we also had a moment of like, what does it mean to make this a sort of series topic? Does that mean that we haven't in the past? Does that mean that we won't in the future? And I think what we're thinking about when we're thinking about this is like, if this is always something we're talking about, what does it mean when we talk to clinicians and other queer people about the intersections of race and racism and the impact of that on folks of color and their mental health? And like, what are, tools for liberation? What are those conversations of education look like? That's what we're kind of going to be exploring while also centering mm-hmm. Black and Indigenous voices as our interviewees that um, we will reveal as the weeks come on. But um, this interview with Dr. Veronica Johnson, your old school buddy, was oh so beautiful. I'm so excited for people to listen. I can't wait for y'all yeah, to, to take a listen in just a little bit. A um, little background about me and Dr. Veronica Johnson. We went to school together at Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, we met in a race and racism class, which is funny. Um, she's a Black woman, and I don't know. She's great. She's dope. Um, so take a listen. Here we go. All right, everybody, we are back. And like I said, we are here to talk to a good friend of mine, somebody I have known for quite a while, somebody that I used to clown with back in grad school, the one, the only, Dr. Veronica Johnson. Hey, Veronica girl, how you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I am doing good. Um, You know, we had a little bit of technical difficulty, so I sound a little bit weird, but it's fine. You know, we're going to work. It happens. It happens. It happens. The point is we're here talking to you, so that's what I'm happy about. <laughs> Me too. I feel like I feel like I have to be serious on this interview, but all I really want to do is just like bring this <laughs> about race and racism class, which is what we're talking about, um, as well as our time like working at Barnard behind that desk. Like, it was a fun Honestly, time. Honestly, you know I'm always down the clown, right? Like, I spend a lot of my life being serious, so please feel free to just, you know. <laughs> Do what you feel necessary here. 
Likely that's what we do on this podcast. So we're going to have some great. Fun, I think. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I've, I've listened to this podcast and I'm a big fan of you all, um, especially your take on, you know, what to do when you want to F your therapist. That was. My oh, yeah. Yes. Was that like coming you... from a doctor? I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I saw it and I was like, I got to listen to this. And then I loved your take on it. I thought it was spot on. It was so like, mm-hmm. like wonderful and also professional and not salacious. Like it was great. It was, it struck like the perfect tone for me as a therapist, at least. So I was, I loved it. Loved it. Oh, yay. That makes me happy. <laughs> I'm literally blushing, I think. And then especially, I, Shawnee's been talking about you uh, for the last several weeks and honestly since you pitched it a while ago yeah mm-hmm. and then just like uh last week earlier this week going to your website and reading your bio and I just like I admit that I got like a tiny bit nervous just like because of like the breadth of the work and the scope of the work um so I'm just I'm naming my nerves a little bit to like get it out in the room <laughs> I love that you're doing that and um please don't because I, if Shawnee tells you just like even a sliver of the shenanigans that we were up to at Columbia you will not be nervous <laughs> I'll have to get I, the um oh you're what sorry no I was just saying so you know don't worry about that at all <laughs> okay, thank you <laughs> Yeah, Veronica's not, I mean, first of all, let's let's just, let's get to know you a little bit because okay. the last time that we were like in New York City together, you were not Dr. Veronica Johnson. I just knew you was like Veronica Johnson. Yeah, just regular Veronica. <laughs> yeah, 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 but now you got what, a PhD? I have a PhD, yes, in counseling psychology. Amazing. So that will bring us to our first question, which is sure. the question we ask all our guests. Um, mm-hmm. What are some identities that you hold and bring into this world? Mm, Okay. Well, first and foremost, I am a Black woman. I am cisgendered. I am heterosexual. Um, I am upper middle class now, I guess we would say. (laughs) I guess that feels weird to claim. Maybe a little, but it could all go away tomorrow, right? Like that's how I kind of, you know. Um, And I am from the South, which I feel like is kind of a weird, important part of my identity that I still hold on to. Are you from the South or are you you from the South or are you from Florida? Wow. Okay. But see, I am from the South because I'm from North Florida. Okay. <laughs> right. So that's important. Yes, I absolutely am from the South. Okay. <laughs> we'll let you have it. We'll let you have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, like you said, you are a, um, you're a counselor, you're a therapist. Um, I assume that you work with, you know, lots of different clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I work with um, anywhere from six years old to, you know, obviously middle adulthood, um, late adulthood, mostly women and mostly black women and girls. So yeah, that's mostly my clients right now. Oh my God, that's amazing. I feel like uh, there's so many different ways we could go with this. So mm. hmm, you work with a lot of black women right what sort of what drew you to that and I mean I don't want to say the obvious just because you're a black woman but like what Mm -hmm. is it about black women what is it about what do you get out of those sort of sessions can I ask Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um so one thing is that I'm not really drawn to working with anyone I think I work well with a lot of different people but black women are drawn to work with me Mm -hmm. um and so you know 
there's a lot of identity safety, I think, for Black girls and Black women working with me. They come in sort of erroneously maybe assuming that we're going to be the same or very, very similar. And then they come, you know, through the course of therapy, find out that we're very different in many ways, which I think is a very enriching experience for them and for me, right? Because they come in just wanting to be understood and being like, oh, you're a Black woman, you'll understand me, and come to find out that we're different in so many ways, but that doesn't mean that we still can't work really productively together. Um, but you know what, if, if my black womanhood gets them through the door and gets them engaged in therapy, I'm, I'm all about that, but obviously I'm open to working with a lot of different people. Um, and I've come to find that it, it's pretty much the same. It, it, it's often that way for a lot of therapists as a therapist, you tend to attract people who are like you in identity. So you know, it kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. Is there anything, I don't know, when, you, when you're working with, you know, Black women, Black people, would you say that there are the themes that you sort of notice that come up pretty often? And I, I say this because I had a Black therapist, mm. a Black woman mm-hmm. therapist, mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like much of our sessions were, Mm -hmm. I think the takeaway usually at the end of the day had something to do with being Black, right? So like Mm -hmm. one of the things that we were really working on was me setting boundaries at work Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of me understanding how to set those boundaries, why it was difficult for me to set boundaries, why sometimes Mm -hmm. I over-explained why I needed to set boundaries. And long story short, um, it, it all sort of boiled down to this fear of getting in trouble, this fear of like uh, not not being treated the same way as like my white peers or white coworkers Mm -hmm. and feeling like I'm Mm -hmm. supposed to be doing more or Mm -hmm. I'm more likely to be the one thrown under the bus or to get in Mm -hmm. trouble with something. Um, And you know, that work sort of led to me questioning why I had to do those things, which then led to me sort of pushing back on um, that over explaining, like doing more and biting off more than I can actually chew to the point where I could actually set up boundaries. So I don't know, I guess I'm wondering, have you run into similar things in your practice? And if not, like, what do you normally sort of hear and see from your, from your clients? Mm. I mean, I, as you talk, I was like, I'm thinking about myself, of course, mm. <laughs> but also I'm thinking about my clients where, yeah, I mean, there's so much fear-based kind of behaviors and actions um, that I encounter in my work, especially with Black women and a lot of it is in the workplace right if they're working women it's around like how do I sort of either stay under the radar at my job or like shine at my job and all of it requires in their mind I think you know originally like overextending themselves um, beyond what they're capable of kind of putting their mental health and their self-care in jeopardy in order to be high achieving to prove themselves to others whether that's you know family members peers uh, co-workers, bosses, whoever. Um, So yeah, I think a lot of that fear-based, like I need to be this way or I need to do this in order to be valuable, to be worthy, to keep my job, to stay afloat, like all of that. It's just a lot of like, you know, frantic swimming to the surface. Um, And so I think our work is really around kind of like helping them know, like, actually you can stand here, right? There's a little rock you can stand on, you know, give yourself a little bit of a break. Um, But I think, you know, what I've come to understand as someone who also understand who also studies race and racism is that 
living in an oppressive society, right, often makes you feel like you are just on the brink of some catastrophe, right? Whether it's losing your job, going, you know, uh, being homeless, right, uh, deteriorating in some way. So this is really built and baked into our society. And, right, we don't always have to function like we are about to drown. Something I'm thinking about um, both in what you're talking about with these direct behaviors and these direct mm-hmm. sort of in, in, initial problems that are coming up that, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe span a population or don't, but they're showing up in both of your lives. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm thinking about too is not only just as a therapist, but also as a consultant an educator and expert witness, like mm-hmm. we're thinking about the system of racism, mm-hmm. not just like race as an aspect that's impacting people's lives individually, mm-hmm. where do you see your role as a mental health clinician um, succeeding and also those limitations in working to dismantle this system? Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I find myself being like, am I part of the system? Right. Am I just mm-hmm. kind of keeping people happy enough right, to just keep working through this system? Yeah. It's a very challenging thing. And so I'm not going to have an eloquent answer to it. Um, I We're do just really, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think as a clinician, I'm really focused on individual and family health. Um, and so I recognize that in order to dismantle, you know, systemic oppression, we all have to sort of survive to be able to do that and to chip away at something that is massive. And so my work is around actually helping people manage their desires to want to like break the system, right. To do you know, really push for like radical change, which is not a, which is obviously what we need, right? But I'm also making sure that people are healthy in their quest to sort of make things better for their children, for their, for future generations, for other people of color in their workplace, right? Like it's, it's really important to me that people understand, I was about to say limitations, not limitations, but understand when they need to sort of rest, use coping skills, right? Because that's what's going to create sort of sustainable efforts to dismantle oppression versus the types of burnout and just kind of fatigue and depression and so forth that I see in some people who just take the weight of the world literally on their shoulders. And that happens a lot of times to be Black women, right? So they're constantly um, putting the needs of others over themselves. And I'm asking them, you know, in the therapy room to just for even 45 to 50 minutes, focus with me on what they might be needing. And I think Mm -hmm. that it can be helpful in sort of creating some long-term coping, long-term health practices that get them a little bit further than where they would have been had they not come into therapy. Mm. I feel that was deeply eloquent. <laughs> Very eloquent. I, that like burnout and exhaustion piece is, I mean, it's it's so real. I think that it's been over a year. Yeah, it's been over a year since the uh, since George Floyd's since George Floyd's death and since everything mm-hmm. that sort of came after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember last summer slash like last spring being exhausted I mean I've talked about it on this podcast before but like Mm -hmm. you know another black death has happened like after George Floyd and it got to the Mm -hmm. point where I was like I mean I don't have anything to say I have nothing to offer anybody related to that because I'm just exhausted this is like Mm -hmm. a this is not something I can ever walk away from this has been going on my entire life so I mean 
let's say one of your clients brings that to you. What is your sort of, what is your go-to, I don't know, like exercise or, or mm-hmm. piece of advice that you would give them? Um, you know, for me, I, I am psychodynamic. I think you know this, <laughs> I'm psychodynamic. And so a lot of my work is around examining kind of familial patterns and relationships that might impact the way that we function in everyday life. So for me, I always want to have a really, really good working understanding of individual clients, kind of original family systems. And so for the person who might be presenting with this, like fatigue, like I can't do it. Like it sort of sounds like you're describing a little bit of like numbness too. Like I don't even feel the feeling anymore. I'm just like muted. Um, a lot of times I'm really asking them to find things that activate them in a positive way, you know? So that might be like finding laughter, finding stimulating activities that are around like joy, right. Or something or a positive emotion um, to get them sort of feeling again at all. Right. And then allowing them to, also think about how their sort of overexertion, their overattentiveness, I think, to other people's needs, right, or concerns, maybe plays out in their everyday life in other ways, right? So I found that the people who, and myself, I also had this experience of feeling like extreme fatigue um, after the events of last summer, but I also found myself being like, well, you know what, and, right, I am one person, I cannot save the world from racism. If I could, I certainly would, but it doesn't serve anyone for me to continue to sort of, um, you know, try to metabolize all of this on a day, on a daily basis. And so I took a step back from news. I took a step back from things that were going to kind of trigger this numb feeling, my sadness, my depression, whatever. Um, And so I also asked my clients to also do that for themselves, even if it's just an hour or two hours, right? You consuming this information or hearing about Black death is not at all going to serve um, the dismantling of racism in this country. And it's certainly not going to serve you. So like little timeouts, doing um, activities that kind of promote positive emotions. Those are the types of things that I'll ask my clients to, in addition to really thinking about how, how they're managing their emotions and how they're acting in service of their emotions or, um, you know, sort of not in service of their emotions might repeat some earlier patterns that they might've been modeled for them in their families. So. One of the things that we enjoy doing here is uh, thinking about how we can queer mental health. And one of those things is uh, making it a little bit more palatable or digesting it a little bit for the audiences. Um, Could you explain maybe a little bit more about what psychodynamic means? Yes. So psychodynamic, it's, it's, you know, it's a tough one. I always laugh about it because it's a very sort of New York orientation at this point. I don't know that a lot of people outside of New York are really, some are, but people are more uh, sort of behavioral in nature. So psychodynamic, uh, a psychodynamic orientation is really very, very loosely at this point based on Freudian psychology and this idea that the, you know, the original family system of the relationship that a person has with their primary caregivers, a mom, a dad, whoever, right, um, really is the blueprint with which they will then, you know, relate to other people in the future um, in terms of peers, romantic relationships, their own family systems, 
Um, and so a lot of times I really, it's not that I visited in every session with my clients, but a lot of times I really want to have a good understanding of people's familial patterns so that when I see those patterns kind of rear up in romantic relationships or relationships with coworkers and bosses, I can say like, you know what this is reminding me of? This is reminding me of a conversation we had two months ago. Mm about your relationship with mom, right? And how relationship with mom was great. And there was this way in which you felt like, you know, she was often asking you to do things that were a little inappropriate or unnecessary or irritating for you, right? And so I wonder if your inability to stand up for yourself with mom has anything to do with the fact that you're really having a hard time sort of setting boundaries, right? Or managing your relationships in the workplace. Um, I do think all of those relationships are important, but I think, you know, psychodynamic work gets a little bad, a bad rap because I think a lot of times people feel like you're blaming their parents, right? And parents feel like you're blaming them. But I think it's all just like fodder, right? Like it's just like, material to work with in an interesting way and not and I certainly don't come from a place of blaming anyone's parents um, or anyone's family systems for how they are I just want them to understand where things came from a lot of times I find that clients find it really reassuring and um and calming to know like oh this is where this came from and now I have at least a better intellectual understanding of where why I might be you know sort of having trouble in this area of my life how does how does racism or maybe Mm -hmm. it's just race itself like fit Mm -hmm. into that psychodynamic model and that approach yeah I mean that's part of the other criticism of psychodynamic work is that people don't often recognize that it does at all right because a lot of psychodynamic work is really built on like intrapsychic processes right so this idea that like there are these kind of common processes that every human has right you sort of have the you know of course you have the id ego and the super ego right but you also have libidinal forces these are all sort of universal things right psychodynamic theory is all about what is universal across all human beings um the problem comes in for some people when they're like what's not universal right it's like my experience as i move through the world as a person of color right or as a black person or as a queer person where does this theory help me when I feel like, right, like there are specific sort of um, circumstances in my life that are not addressed by this particular type of treatment. Um, And so that's where people like myself come in, and a lot of people, of course, um, who say that like, no, there are these universal kind of psychological um, dilemmas and things that we all have to go through. And that if you can understand that through the unique life experiences of the person that you're working with, it still works as a treatment, right? So for me, a lot of times with Black female clients, right, and using this orientation, I have to take into consideration the types of oppression that they've experienced, both as being Black people and also as being women, and fold that into the interventions that I make, right? I can't be like, oh, the reason why you're having trouble setting boundaries with your boss is because you had a hard time doing that with your dad, right? And it's like, okay, and like, we're just going to remove racism and sexism from the equation? Absolutely not, right? We're going to talk about how power played maybe into your dynamics with your family, but also play a very, very heavy role in the way that you navigate the world as a Black woman, right? So we're still talking about something that's universal. We've all dealt with power imbalances in our lives. Um, But for a Black woman, right, they may be very, very well acquainted with power imbalance because they're experiencing it 
every day, all the time as they navigate their through their lives. And it maybe holds this larger space in their psyche than someone who is, you know, white, cis, heterosexual and sort of navigates the world um, in that way. So we're always folding in or rather I am always folding in my understanding of how like external forces, right, kind of um, interact with those more interpsychic, universal, psychological things. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better word. All those things. The all, words, those things. all the words. All the things. Yeah. <laughs> all the things. Something that I was hearing within that too is like that lens upon a lens upon a lens that you're like mm. sitting with and holding space with those individual mm -hmm. people is I think probably one of the reasons why people seek you out beyond the identity shared thing. I think mm -hmm. that there's there can be a lot of like people who take the same education that you have and, and are not going to um, place the uniqueness and the power lenses on top of those things. They're going to see it as universal. And that's where the harm happens. That's the harm happens when we treat people universally when there is not a universal answer to the ways that these things interact with each other and our inter identities intersect. Um, Absolutely. I, guess, I guess I'm also thinking about too, um, I'm so sorry, sometimes my ADHD brain makes like seven questions pop into my head at once then I've got to like figure out which one it is. Um, <laughs> you just watch that happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. I, uh, the question I actually have is, do you have a therapist? <laughs> Of course I have a therapist. Are you <laughs> what kidding? is that experience like, like for you? We're at like our 10 year anniversary right now or something close to that. Um, really? Yeah. Oh my God. So, yeah, I've been <laughs> in therapy for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I should maybe bring her a cake. Would that be weird? We'll talk about it. I'm probably going to do it. But um, no. <laughs> Next I've, episode, I've been... is it weird to bring your therapist a cake? <laughs> Yeah, Can you give exactly. a mouse a cookie? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yes, I've, I've been in therapy for many years, probably not 10 years, but probably around like six or seven years, actually, with the same therapist. Um, so absolutely. I find therapy to be sort of like so paramount in my life. Like it's such a foundation for me in terms of everything that I do, including my clinical work. So oftentimes when I'm in therapy, if I'm struggling with a particular case, whether it's like bringing up like helplessness, like I don't feel like I'm helping this person or this person's really grating on me in a way that I don't understand, right? I'll bring that into my own therapy because it's like a little supervision slash like what about me is getting kicked up in this therapeutic process that I need to like use my own therapy to sort of work through. And oftentimes it's, it's you know, some of the best clinical supervision I've ever gotten. It's like, let's put it all out there. What is happening? Why am I struggling with this particular case? So, yeah. I was going to ask how you like manage your mental health while dealing with tough issues like social justice and working at SUNY, right? Yeah, CUNY, CUNY, CUNY City. CUNY. Always, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah, I mean, soft therapy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> therapy has been wonderful. By the way, my therapist is like a Korean woman, uh, like middle-aged Korean woman, uh, who I found when I was in graduate school a little bit after you left. So this might have been like my third year of my doctoral program. But yeah, so she was referred to me from another student. And I've been with her since then. She's amazing. And, you know, it's really, we have some of the most interesting conversations around race and racism, which often comes up in my sessions. Um, and she's 
she's so wonderful and so understanding. And there's also things that I bring up that she absolutely does not understand. Um, you know, like just about like the black experience or whatever. And it and it's a wonderful relationship that we've built around talking about like she's so open to talking about everything with me that I don't feel off put I guess whenever there's something that she doesn't understand because I know that she's working to understand and I, I don't have this unrealistic expectation that she's gonna understand every aspect of my experience as someone who's not me right so it's it's great she's wonderful yeah I mean and speaking of people that aren't like you I mean mm. I think that you talked about it a little bit earlier about this sort of universe like there is no universal approach to like dealing with people's challenges mm -hmm. and issues in life um I mean when you look at let's say the queer community right mm -hmm. and racism absolutely exists within that community but I yeah. think that a lot of times people um when they think about the queer community or they think about some of the some of the challenges the queer community has gone through and the issues that, have, that they've sort of had to face in the in the world and in society um, racism is not one of the things that comes up, but mm. discrimination, prejudice, like, um, you know, just being treated differently and less than do. So I know this feels like a very, it feels like a very basic question to me, um, mm. but it might not to some of our viewers, mm. our viewers, our listeners. Um, <laughs> what is the difference between racism and discrimination and then discrimination and prejudice because those are all three different things and I do think that sometimes they get sort of mixed and misconstrued mm -hmm. and some people will say well I can't be racist because of this or I can't discriminate because like I belong to this group so could you mm -hmm. maybe break that down yeah I mean so discriminate I'll start with discrimination because discrimination is sort of what to me feels like a, a more global term right so like we can all be discriminatory, right? We can all discriminate on someone else on the, the basis of their identity, right? So um, discrimination just simply means treating someone unfairly, right? Um, on the basis of their identity. So that might be, that might be race, that might be age, that might be sex, that might be sexual orientation, that might be gender, what have you. Um, and so a lot of times I will hear people say like, I've been discriminated against. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm sure you have been, right? Like we probably all have been because discrimination is so, you know, it, it's sort of part of not who we are, but it's it's so commonplace, right? You can be discriminated about virtually anything. Um, with racism and prejudice, like prejudice is not a word that I often use anymore, to be honest, um, at yeah, all. Yeah, it's not like so, pride and prejudice, right? Like that's- Yeah, yeah, I don't use that word so much anymore. <laughs> like even in my writing, I don't really use it. Um, so I'll focus on racism, right? And and distinguish racism from discrimination, right? Because we can't have racial discrimination, just like you can have discrimination based on anything else where someone's being treated unfairly on the basis of their race. Um, I think when we talk about racism though, um, it takes a few different forms, right? So we can have individual racism. Some people will call it interpersonal racism, right? And so this is like from one person to the next, right? So. I am, you know, called a slur on the train or I am looked over, you know, um, ugh, I don't know, that's probably more systemic, but um, you get what I'm saying. It's sort of from individual to individual. And then you can have cultural racism, which is this idea that like things that are ingrained in a particular culture, right, are sort of denigrated in a society, right? So like things that 
feel like they are um, germane to a particular racial group are denigrated and considered less than or dangerous or invaluable or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have, of course, like institutional or systemic racism, right, which exists on a broader level where this is things like, you know, we are going to... Um, you know, create different districts where people can vote, right, and cannot vote in order to suppress the Black vote, right, or to um, segregate particular communities from other communities and, you know, so forth. So these are more of those, like, larger level um, manifestations of racism. So I think a lot of times people get confused, at least when we're talking about racism and other forms of discrimination, I guess, in that people don't feel as if racism exists at all those levels they maybe just think about individual racism I think and so they get caught up in this idea that like I don't think negative thoughts consciously about people outside of my racial group so I couldn't possibly be racist or I couldn't necessarily be you know contributing to racism and so they get really locked into individual racism and not understanding that racism spans kind of a, a more broader um it's broader it's a broader definition than I think uh people are aware of yeah, I feel like the systemic <clears throat> systemic racism is, it's way more, it, I mean, it's subtle. It's like behind the scenes. You don't really see it. It's almost like invisible in a lot of ways. And I think that yeah. because of that, it's super easy to get gaslit like as a person of color uh, mm -hmm. into thinking that, okay, am I tripping? Like, am I just making everything about race? And maybe it's not about it this time. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> My gosh, I just actually wrote a paper on racial gaslighting. Not, it's not just racial gaslighting, but I talked about sort of this idea of like gaslighting as a way to oppress people. Um, and so one of the things that I talked about, I wrote about in this paper was racial gaslighting. So this idea that like, you can say like, whoa, 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 where are we coming from with that comment or that felt racist to me or whatever. And people can just simply be like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't racist, right? You know, and you're like, uh, Okay, yeah. so I'm just left here knowing that this is racist, right? But you telling me that it's not, and like here we are at a standoff, you know? Um, and how crazy making, like, you know, like all forms of gaslighting, how crazy making that can be for someone. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about as you were talking was this idea of like aversive hostile racism, which is like really insidious to me uh, in the way that I define it, which is basically like country club racism, right? Ooh. In that it's this idea of being invited entry into an organization, right? A peer group, a space, what have you, right? But then being treated differently um, in that space, right? So let's say I get a job at a college, right? And I, you know, I'm there, I've, I've been hired like everybody else. And yet, right, I'm, I'm like, emailing people like, hey, can I get some pins in my office? And then nobody's getting back to me, right? Like, oh, I'm going to need some more ink for my printer. Nobody's getting back to me. I got to go through 15 hoops to get the things that, you know, my counterparts are getting in like two seconds, right? So this idea of like being given access to a space, but not really being given access to a space. So I hear you when you talk about like all these different subtle manifestations of racism. Um, that are very cloaked for, I think, people who don't experience them day in and day out. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky. It is <laughs> very tricky. 
earlier you were naming education and then also, you know, talking about what you're sharing with your therapist. And I'm mm. assuming, and maybe this is a assumption I need to get checked on, but I'm assuming a mm. lot of the education is not with folks that look like you, right? Like you're hired mm. to teach education across difference uh, and mm-hmm. teach about racism in, in ways that yep. you so beautifully kind of broke that down for us a little bit now, um, mm-hmm. which is a generous offering. And mm-hmm. also I think requires a lot of patience and a lot of that, um, you were saying earlier about like this sort of, I can't expect someone to know what's not theirs. And, and yeah. so like, I have to offer this like space for folks to step into. That's so generous. And I'm wondering mm. how you balance that generosity with protection of yourself. Yeah, I'm. can I just say, I love this question so much because I've often found myself like wondering this about myself, like how am I able to do it in a way that actually you, you one might assume that it's rather taxing for me to talk about race and racism. And certainly it is, right? It, it is, I'm not gonna say that it's not all the time. However, I do find myself feeling like if, if, if I'm willing to talk about it and to teach it and people are willing to listen to me, um, then I'm going to do it. Right. And so the idea is that like, I grew up in North Florida, which is the South Johnny, by the way. Um, I grew up we, in yeah, North we, Florida. That's what it is. We, we okay. cover that. <laughs> I'm gonna let you have it for this, for this one interview. <laughs> let me have this. Let me have this. So I grew up in North Florida, right? And went to predominantly white schools my entire childhood. And nobody was like talking about race and racism, right? I was a little black girl in classes with all white people um, and, and who were my friends. Like they genuinely were my friends, but did not understand that there was this whole aspect of my identity and my experience that they like did not know about. Like they did not know about, I did not feel comfortable talking with them about. And part of it was because I didn't feel safe to, right? Like it's not on me, but I I didn't feel safe to do that. And so now I'm in a position of being able to, of course I'm in New York City, right? Like I think, you know, ideas around race, racism, discrimination in every form are are quite different here um, in this environment, but it's, an honor really for me to be able to talk about these experiences and educate people on the types of experiences that people of color have um, as a professor, right, in a position of power versus it having to be your girlfriend, right, um, or your um, your best friend, right, after 20 years of friendship having to be like, hi, it's summer 2020, and I cannot believe that, like, you don't understand my experience and we've been friends for 20 years, you know, like that sort of thing. So for me, it feels like my little sliver, I don't even want to call it a sliver. It's just like a little pinpoint of social justice work that I do. And I'm okay with doing it because I'm in a position of power. Like I'm being paid to teach this stuff and I'm creating the grades. And even if you don't believe me, you got to at least understand it on an intellectual level in order to get your grade. Um, And that's not coming from a place of like, you know, like gross power, but like, like this is my job. So I do it. And I think it also helps me to be a little bit emotionally removed from it in moments. Right. I'm not, it's not like, Mm. I'm like, I'm trying to teach Maddie about my experience. Right. It's like, no, it's a class and I'm teaching people. Right. And then I can like quantifiably grade them on how much of it they understand or don't understand. Mm. And then I leave and go home. Right. The harder work is when I encounter it in my actual personal life right so when I have to have a difficult conversation with um 
a friend or a family member, right, about my own experiences as a Black woman and what I feel like they may not fully understand about me as a result of that, those are the more, you know, emotionally taxing moments. But teaching in the classroom, honestly, for whatever reason, maybe I compartmentalize really well, but it, it just, it doesn't feel as emotionally taxing as I think I maybe even thought it might at some points. So yeah, but I, I love the question. And I think that what you're also saying too is like, not only are you stepping into the space of like, this exists here for this reason and give me my coins, but mm-hmm. also <laughs> the people coming to that are sort of consenting a little bit to the idea of instruction, which like I agree. Yes. opens them yeah. up to a space to receive some of that correction or education yeah. or information. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying... I'm sure you've dealt with some difficult students, but I'm saying oh, yeah. that at least there's at least like this potential platform that is like, we are entering this space together and it's not just some random on the street. Right. And I, and I do come from a place of like, sometimes people just don't know. Right. And I have the position of being like your student, right. You need a passing grade in this class, I guess, maybe whatever. Sometimes I guess they don't really care, but I come from a place of like, let's just, let's just do this together. Like we're all in this together. I got stuff that maybe you want to learn and you've got a mind that needs to be filled up and let's just have this interaction, right? Let's have this exchange. And there's not a lot emotionally invested in it for me, right? Like I have my degree, which is what I tell my students all the time. I'm like, you can argue with me all you want. I have my PhD. I am done, right? Like (laughs) no amount of arguing you do with me is going to take that for me. Um, and often what I find is, I mean, listen, Hey, like at the end of the day, I have everything that I need. I'm okay. Um, and so a lot of times, even the most difficult of students, even the students who I can see their faces just kind of like scrunch up when I start to talk about racism or race, um, by the end of the semester, you see them soften, right? Because it's not, I'm not, I don't have an agenda to like, be like, hey, you got to be anti-racist, right? Or you got to understand what racism is. I just sort of teach, right? And I come from a place of not needing anything from them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that helps my teaching style to translate. It's like, she doesn't need anything from me. She's not desperate for me to learn this or to get this in the way that she thinks about it. She's just presenting the information. I think a lot of times that disarms students who are very prone to feeling like, oh my gosh, here we go. You know, this this professor has got a chip on her shoulder. I mean, especially as a a woman, like a black woman coming into um, a lecture like something around race and racism like people are going to automatically assume you have this like secret agenda you have a chip on your shoulder and I'm like mm-hmm. okay bye guys you know students can get nasty with me in the classroom I'm like okay talk to you next week right because yeah. I'm not a mo- I'm not asking anything of them um and I think they they recognize that very quickly and then they realize that like they can leave with the same exact you know thoughts and feelings that they've had you know since the beginning of the semester but they could also just maybe tune into what I'm trying to teach them. Um, but yes, I've certainly had my, you know, a number, I've been accused of reverse racism, of course, right? I have been um real. Yeah, reported <laughs> to the provost. Yeah, reported to the provost, all this what? stuff. Of course, I've been through all that kind of stuff. Of course. Of yeah. course. And I think the more experiences I have like that, the more I am um, the more I can handle it, you know, the more I'm kind of like, okay, here we go again, talk to the provost, like, you know, like, it's just sort of like, they're not non-painful experiences, but they're less painful, the more I have of them. Right, right. 
Well, knowing that like <clears throat> you do speak to a diverse array uh, of students and people just in like your day to day. I remember, I think this was, uh, was this in Dr. Carter's class? Was, was, I don't know if it was his class or somebody else's, but I remember at one point in grad school having to write a paper about um, racism and its impact on some like part of society mm-hmm. and why essentially like essentially setting up a debate as to like why racism is just as hurtful to white people as it is to black people right so mm-hmm. I'm not gonna ask you to like talk about all of that because that in and of itself is an episode but mm-hmm. knowing that the trauma of racism is um it's felt everywhere. It's not just mm-hmm. felt amongst Black people um, or against Asian people or any sort of one particular race. It is. Mm-hmm. It impacts everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some resources? What are some um, What are some things people can explore, whether they be Black, whether they be white, whatever they are, to sort of help them gain a better understanding of racism and then also gain support and some sort of um, healing from the trauma of it all? Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, resources. I have so many swirling around in my head. I think, you know, some of these reading lists that were going around last summer and last fall, I think are helpful. I think some of these like um, Kindy's book on what is it, how to be anti-racist, I think is a good one. Um, I think really any of that can be helpful. I think film is also a really, film and TV are actually really excellent ways, weirdly enough, to learn about like the realities of racism, whether it's through documentaries, um, whether it's through more fiction stuff. I found that like the realities of racism being on full display and like, you know, Lovecraft Country was a great way for people to let her like emotionally connect to the terror that is, you know, um, old fashioned racism. Um, you know, reading about things like racial microaggressions are really helpful. So Kevin Nadal's work on racial microaggressions and Dr. Sue's work on racial microaggressions are really helpful. Um, Kevin also talks about like uh, microaggressions against queer people of color, which is really a really great intersectional approach to understanding microaggressions. I think all of this stuff can be really helpful in helping people to understand that racism is not just like putting on a white hood, right? And burning, burning like a, you know, across in someone's front yard um, and learn to sort of embrace this idea that like racism, like I described to my students, it's like in the air, you know, it's sort of like we're all breathing it in as a black woman. I breathe it in every day, right? And have to constantly check my own internalized racism. Um, Everyone's breathing it in, right? And so the idea is that if you can learn to just sort of accept that racism is a reality in this country, in this world, then you, you start off on a better foot than trying to kind of like, oh, I'm not racist and posture yourself as if you are not, right? Like we all are because it's in the air. Like now, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to find cognitive mechanisms to check your own racism or internalized racism, which is like my approach, right? Like embracing the fact that I am like, uh, you know, queer phobic and have internalized racism and have internalized sexism and all like I just own that that is a part of me because that is what the world has taught me and I'm constantly checking myself with you know the views that I have the reactions that I have what I choose to view what I choose not to view who I choose to support who I you know who I choose not to support all of these decisions right are 
ingrained in an oppressive society, right? That disproportionately negatively impacts um, queer people, people of color. And so I'm just constantly aware of that reality and allowing myself to be aware of how it has impacted me, not taking it as if I'm a bad person, right? Because I have, you know, acted discriminatory discriminatorily um right but just owning the fact that it is my job as a person who's on a path to you know people will call it enlightenment people will call it uh uh whatever you want to call it right in my journey of being the best person I can that also includes dismantling the oppression the oppressive kind of thoughts and feelings that I have been kind of socialized to have my entire life so it's a lifelong journey, but I'm happy to I'm happy to be doing it. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> that was great. Um, and I, um, oh, I'm go gonna ahead. get you to send over if you are able later um, a list of some of those resources so that we can share them with our listeners, listeners and our Ab- and resources. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. I mean, of that course. Last- that last little piece, like I'm gonna sit with, cause I mean, it was, it's mm. true, right? Like you, we have all internalized these things because that is just what happens when you are born in this country. I mean, any country probably, but especially this country, no matter mm-hmm. which side of the line or fence that you're on. So I don't know, I, I feel like that's a great place to end it. I, I don't know, thank you. <laughs> thank you for enlightening us on that. Of course, of course. Do you wanna take some meds? Yeah, we're gonna take some meds um, and then be right back. All right, we are back to take some meds, our, one of our favorite times of the, of the podcast. So I'm gonna go first, let y'all know what I'm popping, what pills I'm popping. Um, this week, I am just really happy that uh, I've been able to get outdoors. I don't know, I, I realized this week that I have not really been hiking this year. I have not been camping this year. Um, The most outside thing that I've done has been like drinking and taking blue on a walk. So this week I got outdoors. That's pretty much it. I I camped, I hiked, I did the whole shebang. I plan on floating next weekend. So yeah, I don't know. I'm happy to be outdoors, especially living in Portland. And I don't know, I also found it very strange that I've gotten this far into summer and had not been any sort of outdoor activity. So I don't know, I'm happy I did it because, you know, it doesn't hurt to be out in nature. All right, Veronica, what meds are you taking? Uh, just like really bad horror movies. Like mm-hmm. I, I love horror and I especially love bad horror. So, you know, M. Night always delivers on like really bad you horror. You the new one. I watched old and oh. I was so entertained the entire time. I, my favorite part of his movies is when he cuts away from the stuff that we really want to see and like, just like give us something you fool. So yeah, he's been making like movies for, you know, two decades based off, you know, on the strength of signs and I love it. And so <laughs> it's always hilariously bad with a great message always. So, you know, that's the silver yeah. lining and stuff. Yeah. I'm going to see that later on today, so. Okay, well, text me after and tell me your reaction. I will, even though just now I feel like you were, you said it was a bad movie, so. Now I'm going to go it's into like, it with that. <laughs> it's bad, like, all of his stuff is bad, but I was also thoroughly entertained, so there you go. Okay, okay. okay. Yes, yes. That's my expectation for that movie, and I am going to see it. I think I was just, like, 
I was holding off on a, a jumping for a ticket, but I, mm-hmm. the minute that it's streaming, I'm hitting play. Like I know that. Love much. it. Love it. You will have, also, have a good time. Thank you. I also am dying to have you back to come talk to us about horror and like horror and mental health and the abject Ooh. and like things like Lovecraft Country. I'm thinking maybe that's our October thing. Anyway, this is a brainstorm. I'm throwing it out here. <laughs> Let me put it in the document. Let me put it in the doc. <laughs> I am blocking off all times in October. Please okay, have great. me back. I would love free. to be here for that. Yes. <laughs> I'm yours for October. Uh, my meds for this week are um, I got to go to Six Flags yesterday and um, I have joked many times on this podcast that like the only time I feel joy is when I'm like being hurtled on a machine, like towards my death. And like, uh, there's this ride called the Joker that you like sit in a circle. And then it says pendulum that like is the highest pendulum of any ride in the country. And it like swings 75 miles down, but Six Flags Fiesta is like in this Canyon. So like you're getting like flown up into the air and you're kind of like sideways and you're just like looking at rock, but in this way that you never are able to look at rock. And I had a little bit of this like transcendent moment where I'm just like in the air, just like, wow, this is so pretty. And then like getting flung back to the earth. And it was like um, really wild and really fun. But that moment I think is gonna be cemented in my brain forever. So <laughs> that's, my, that's my meds this week. I love that for you because I hate roller coasters. So does Spencer, he was mad. Oh. <laughs> I'm happy we have that in common. I feel like I hate them because my mom, like with anything in life, when somebody forces it on me, I'm like, well, then I just don't like this now. Like if I had like discovered it on my own, maybe. But I felt like growing up, my mom also loved like roller coasters. And I was like, I don't know if I want to get on this. And she was like, you're getting on it. So now I just have like a weird phobia of them, even though I've been on a few and it's fine. Like, I know I'm not going to die, but I don't know. I'm like, I don't need this. Like life is scary enough. I think the idea that you might die is the most fun. <laughs> oh my God, says the Scorpio. <laughs> okay. Um, Dr. Veronica Johnson, thank you so much for being here. I know you and Shani are old buddies. And I um, also, another time, next time you're here, I want you to tell us all the tea on what Shani was like in grad school. I need to hear some of those silly stories. I can't wait. I can't wait. I was yes, and absolutely. But also like such a lifeline, right? Like, yeah. I mean, being there, Columbia is not an easy place to be and having somebody who you know you can authentically just like be yourself with and crack up about pretty much anything with. Anything. I mean, that was such a, it's such a great start to my doctoral journey. So yeah. Hi. Same. <laughs> you, you've inspired me and I feel like i shit I don't even know if I'd be doing this podcast if we hadn't had that conversation at one o'clock in the morning like at Barnard sitting at that desk like it was awesome figuring out our futures together so I don't know I'm so happy to have you as a friend and also we aced race and racism I remember I think we both got A's and I was like well we did we did (laughs) we did yeah of course how could we not ace race and racism it is our life right like (laughs) could you imagine if I got a C in race and racism Oh it was a difficult guy. <laughs> oh my god this has truly been a delight and um just i'm still sitting with so many nuggets from our conversation earlier this is a beautiful kickoff to this talk topic for us um listeners if you would like to share some experience or get some advice on topics related to racism racism and the intersections of mental health you can dm us on instagram or twitter at qbt pod shoot us an email at qbt at gmail.com 
Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. It can remain anonymous and we'd love to talk about it later this month. Um, don't forget to um, check out our merch site on our Instagram link tree. I don't know why my words are like, rrr, rrr. Um, <laughs> and a big, big, big thanks to Ali Kiltz for helping us edit and produce this podcast. Thank you to Kiana and Carlos for their work on socials and our digital footprint. And thank you to Marquis and Shanti Darling for letting us use their music. Another episode wrapped, y'all. We did it. We did it. We did it. And this is just the beginning of Race and Racism. So tune in for future episodes. Uh, I think the next like two or three are still going to be around this, this subject and this topic. But uh, next week, you'll just hear from me and Maddie. So we'll look forward to it. See you then. <laughs> yeah, with a deep voice. <laughs> All right, y'all. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Veronica. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you all. Mm-hmm. Try to talk slick all up in my ear and shit. <laughs>